This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Welcome back to a brand new season of Technically Human. Today's episode features another conversation in the 22 Lessons on Ethics and Technology series. I teach science fiction as a way of thinking about ethics and technology because I fundamentally believe that before we can build anything, we first have to imagine it. Science fiction is at the core of so many of our technological innovations, offering us utopian visions of how the world could be or how our values might be captured and catapulted by new technologies, as well as dystopian visions about how technology's promise can go terribly, horribly wrong. So I was thrilled to talk with Professor Lisa Yazik, one of the world's leading experts on science fiction, for this episode about the role of science fiction in creating a global imaginary about technology that crosses centuries, continents, and cultures. Dr. Lisa Yazik is a Regents Professor of Science Fiction Studies in the School of Literature, Media, and Communication at Georgia Tech. She is particularly interested in issues of gender, race, and science and technology in science fiction across media, as well as the recovery of lost voices in science fiction history and the discovery of new voices from around the globe. Her books include Self-Wired, Technology and Subjectivity in Contemporary American Narrative, published by Rutledge Press in 2002, and Galactic Suburbia, Recovering Women's Science Fiction, published by Ohio State Press in 2008, and Sisters of Tomorrow, the first women of science fiction, published by Wesleyan Press in 2016. Her ideas about science fiction as the premier story form of modernity have been featured in The Washington Post, in Food and Wine magazine, and in USA Today, as well as the AMC miniseries, James Cameron's Story of Science Fiction. A past president of the Science Fiction Research Association, Dr. Yazik currently serves as an editor for the Library of America and as a juror for the John W. Campbell and Eugene Foster Science Fiction Awards. Hi, Lisa. Hi, how are you, Deb? I'm more than well because I'm very excited for this conversation because from the very start of the Technically Human Project, science fiction has been at the core. Sometimes when I tell people that I work on ethics and technology, they gave me this kind of befuddled look and they say something along the lines of, well, why is a professor of English literature teaching ethics and technology? And this is, I think, the cornerstone of my Technically Human course and this podcast that before we can build anything, we first have to imagine it. And that science fiction helps us get at why and how and to what ends we imagine. How do you think about sci-fi as a kind of portal to thinking about the ethics of technology? I think science fiction is the perfect form in which to do this. It's actually baked into the structure of the genre itself. One of the key elements of science fiction is it's centered around this idea of a techno-scientific novum, which is Latin for the new thing, right? So stories are often about a scientific discovery or maybe a technological invention. But the best science fiction doesn't just stop there, right? It has to think about, well, what is the impact of that science and technology on society? And then all of a sudden, you're often thrust into a new social situation that has all these new moral and ethical dimensions to them that you have to think about. So in order to have the science fiction story become a story, something has to happen that has to provoke some sort of ethical dilemma. So you're going to talk about ethics one way or the other if you're doing science fiction. And just to define our terms here before we go any further, what is science fiction? And what specific kinds of contributions do you see science fiction making to technological production and thinking? It's tricky, right? Because in some ways, there are as many definitions of science fiction as there are people who read it and write it and watch it and produce it and consume it and love it and hate it. But I do think there are certain things that we all pretty much have in common when we're thinking about the genre. And I like to use this definition that science fiction scholar Darko Subin introduced in the late 1970s. And it's a sort of formal definition of science fiction. And he talks about it having three elements. I love this idea. So first is that it has to be set in an alternate historical framework, right? It can't be in our own present. 
It's mm. often in the future. It's what we usually think about, but it could be the past or even an alternate present. And then the way the world is different is tied to that idea of a techno-scientific novum. So that's the second thing. You have some sort of scientific discovery or technological invention that has changed that world, that secondary world, and made it different from ours, made it alternate to ours. And this is my favorite part. And I love this. I think this is so cool. I'm such a literary geek. Is there's a certain <laughs> kind of reading that happens with science fiction. And it's a process that Subin called cognitive estrangement. So you go into a story and you're estranged right away. Your, your head is a mess. You're like, why is the world the way it is? But because it's a science fiction story, you keep going because you assume that at some point, someone is either directly or indirectly going to start to explain why that world is the way it is. And in a good science fiction story, it's plausible. So all of a sudden you're like, oh, okay, I'm not so estranged. I get this world. It makes sense to me. And you sort of you go along and you're in the world. And then you come back to our own world. And if you were in a really great science fiction story, you come back to your world and you're estranged again because all of a sudden you're looking at what should be our world, the primary world or real world. And you're like, maybe the world doesn't have to be like this. It could be like something else. And so maybe that's what's so great about science fiction, right? It's a genre that's meant to bug your head in short and to bug your head about the possibilities or dangers of science and technology. Yeah, I would say that much of the science fiction that I read and probably all of what I teach is dystopian science fiction. So it's looking at the bad and the ugly and the ugliest, which I find very interesting because many of the technological products, the actual technological products that are first ideated and imagined in science fiction and then actually become real products are predicated in the context of a science fiction dystopian world. Can you say a little bit about the bad and the ugly and the tendency for sci-fi to ask us to imagine that particular world and bring that particular dimension of the world back into our reality as we become estranged from our present? So, of course, it's important to have these sort of dystopian stories. And in some ways, the grimmer and more dystopian, the better. Science fiction is what I like to call a virtual laboratory. It's a thought experiment. It's a place where we can ask what if and really logically work out our hopes or in the case of dystopian fiction, our fears about what we might do if we take certain science and technologies in certain directions. And you can really push them to the end there and figure out what the consequences would be in a way that's just hopefully not possible in the real world. And that can serve as a warning or a lesson to us about what we might not want to do or what we might want to do in the real world to prevent bad futures. And I think a lot of what you said here that science fiction provides could also be said about a good piece of philosophy. A good piece of philosophy works out and thinks logically about certain unintended consequences or certain possible consequences gives these kinds of guidelines and structures about how to live well. Why then science fiction? What is it about fiction? What is it about narrative? What is it about science fiction as a genre that perhaps other forms of philosophical inquiry might not be able to do? Because I am thinking here about science fiction as a kind of philosophy put in narratival speculative form. So why then not just go to the philosophy? Why go to the speculative narratival form? Well, first of all, I think it's interesting to know how tightly science fiction and philosophy are tied, right? Practitioners in both forms start talking about thought experiments in the 1930s. So like literally this is going back and forth. And of course, in Great Britain, there's a tradition of great science fiction authors also being great philosophers. So I think there's no surprise that we see that there. But there is something that science fiction can do that philosophy can't do. And it's put the human back into the story and to show us the drama and the really human element of these often abstract ethical dilemmas that we talk about. Some of the ethical dilemmas we talk about, even though we intellectually recognize they're important, we don't necessarily have a real emotional connection to them necessarily. There are things that haven't happened to us in our lifetime or perhaps haven't ever happened to anyone at any point in time. And it can be hard to wrap your head around those kinds of things, especially when we already have so many very real and immediate things we often have to worry about. But science fiction can make those kinds of abstract concern immediate and relevant and really hit us in the gut. So instead of just approaching it with our heads, we're approaching it with our hearts. And then that brings us back to our heads and we think, 
oh my gosh, what can I do in the real world to make sure we never feel that way? Why is it important to think symbiotically with our heart and our gut? What's at stake there? Well, in part, increasingly, we're finding that we do think not just with our brains, but with our hearts and our guts. So there's a certain holism when you're considering all these different kinds of input that you get. And I think we can take that analogy out to science fiction is itself. It creates these kinds of connections for us and allows us to see how we're enmeshed with each other and the world. And then these debates that we're having could have real impact on real people. I want to talk about one particular dimension of your work, which is your interest in gender, race and science and technology in science fiction and really science fiction across media, because we were talking here about literature. But of course, science fiction is film. It is television. It is some people would say video games. It is all of these new media forms as well. And your interest is not only in gender and race, but also in the recovery of lost or marginalized voices in science fiction history and the discovery of new voices from around the globe. What got you thinking about looking at this particular dimension of science fiction? What about science fiction as a genre, the way that it's presented, requires a rethinking of the genre in terms of gender and race and recovering lost voices? So I've always been interested in those issues broadly. Even before I was doing science fiction studies, I trained as a graduate student. I like to joke that for 10 long years, I was lost in the wilderness of postmodernism. And even <laughs> then, I was still doing work in critical race and gender studies and trying to weave that in with my work on postmodernism. I think I never knew any differently. Some of the first things I remember reading were like Ralph Ellison and Samuel Delaney and Joanna Russ. So I always thought literature and especially science fiction was about race and gender. I was sort of surprised when I learned it wasn't because I came to it through these strange channels by what my parents had in their house. But when I started teaching at Georgia Tech and it was and still is an overwhelmingly white Western and male school. And I was really excited to teach the science fiction there because it was it's an easy sell. Everyone gets why you're teaching science fiction at a technical institute. But I wanted to do more than sort of business as usual. And we had a really big science fiction archive at Georgia Tech. And I thought, well, my goodness, like what a great opportunity. I'm going to go in the archive and see what I can pull out from history. You know, if there's anything fun we can use to teach beyond like the Asimov, Clark, Heinlein, Holy Trio. And I was just shocked that when I was pulling out these anthologies from the 40s and 50s, mostly the 50s, actually, and the 60s, and all these editors are going on about these amazing women writers and how they've won these awards and how important they were. And I'm like, who? What? Like, really? And at first, it was sort of an eye opener that even within the mainstream science fiction community, there was sort of more, at least gender diversity than we had normally assumed. And then that got me to thinking about and looking at different places where we could find other kinds of authors publishing. And what I realized was there's never really just been one story of futurism in America. We've always had lots of different storytelling traditions about different kinds of futurities. And it seemed to me so important that we recover these. We live in a moment where we feel like we're facing these really new challenges in the world. And yet here I was recovering stories by authors, both we might say mainstream and marginal voices who were grappling with those same issues like 50 years ago, 100 years ago. And it seems to me like we can go to the past and use some of these stories as template for thinking through the present and maybe building better futures. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying here is very interesting, providing this alternative genealogy, which was actually a much more pluralistic vision of what science fiction has historically looked like than the version that is canonized. But Another dimension of that is the canon itself and the way that the canon of science fiction thinks about pluralism. How do you think about a tradition of sci-fi as a canon that, as many people have pointed out, from H.P. Lovecraft to the Hugo Awards that recognize excellence in science fiction, have frequently erased the presence of certain groups in the discourse? And when I talk about those erasures, I mean both the fact that Lovecraft's vision of the future as explored in his fiction seems to believe in imagining the future, that somehow there wouldn't be any, for example, Black people in that future. But I also mean the context of recognizing sci-fi authorship in that canon that has constructed a genealogy that has become canonized and that continues to construct that genealogy that marginalizes or erases women authors from the global South. I'm on Twitter a lot these days and I was talking to Nettie Okorafor 
on Twitter. And, you know, she's still exasperated at the marginalization of women and particularly women of color from the canon. So how do we think about that dimension of the genealogy of science fiction and the construction of that canon? Yeah, well, it's frustrating. And I share Nanadia Korfor's frustration with that as someone who's keeps trying to recover like certain kinds of histories and having it sort of pushed against or people will read it and then somehow completely not see what you're saying. I think on the one hand, it's no surprise that the canon, like many literary and cultural canons, is dominated by the interests of whoever has been the sort of dominant socioeconomic group in you know, a given culture. And so in the case of American science fiction and Western science fiction in general, the dominant form that we associate with like commercial science fiction that became popular in the magazines and the movies of the 20th century and that we enjoy in video games and comic book form and poetry and, you know, I don't know, cupcakes today, right, in many media. You know, ultimately, it evolved from colonial adventure narratives that assumed like it was cool for white people to go around and take brown and black people's land for a variety of reasons. And also science fiction is built on these scientific discourses that treat nature as a feminized and passive land or object to be manipulated and taken and reshaped at will. So the fact that science fiction is built on these 18th and 19th century colonial scientific narratives that are themselves very raced and gendered, you know, that's going to reiterate itself in a lot of the science fiction. And it's going to attract other people who are attracted to those kinds of ideologies and want to explore and play with them. So, yeah, it's no surprise that we're going to continue to see those kinds of ideas celebrated, I think, both implicitly and explicitly. And that becomes, you know, part of the reason why it is difficult for women and BIPOC authors and LGBTQ plus authors sometimes to feel like they're being seen and heard within these spaces. Now, the good news is, right, what we're talking about is a very dominant, but also very specific tradition of science fiction. And it's not the sum total of science fiction. One of the things I find really exciting that we're seeing right now in both scholarship and in science fiction itself a sort of recovery of multiple traditions and looking at ways that we can say, yes, there's this Western tradition that was started by Hugo Gernsback and then sort of cemented by John Campbell and that, you know, people are still engaging with for better or for worse. And that's been important. And it's shaped not just American science fiction, but much world science fiction, for sure, especially through Hollywood narratives and game narratives which were two places where Americans totally excel at science fiction production. But at the same time, it's a bigger tent and we're seeing people really recover that. For instance, we're seeing people look at the way that women and people of color have been writing variations of science fiction and speculative fiction since before the United States was even the United States. I have colleagues who are doing this cool work on looking at American science fiction as part of what they call a Western circuit of science fiction that grew up alongside an Eastern circuit generated by the Soviet Union that looped through India, China, and the United States, believe it or not, through the Harlem Renaissance of all amazing things. And then also increasingly now we're seeing global a Southern circuits of science fiction as well. And while all these circuits are going to be in dialogue with each other and with the Western circuit to a certain extent, it reminds us that there are a lot of ways people tell science fiction stories. And that's exciting and I think perhaps liberating for all of us. Well, let's talk about the Southern Hemisphere and the relationship between the Southern Hemisphere and technological production and science fiction. That's something that's really interesting to me, particularly in the context of Afrofuturism. In my thinking about sci-fi and its role in constructing the global South broadly, not just as shaped by the West, but also as is being reshaped through science fiction by the global South and the African continent specifically, I always cite Kodwo Eshin, and I'm going to quote him here because I think that this quote so captures the nature of the concept. He writes that Afrofuturism's first priority is to recognize that Africa increasingly exists as the object of futurist projection. African social reality is overdetermined by intimidating global scenarios, doomsday economic projections, weather predictions, medical reports on AIDS, and life expectancy forecasts, all of which predict decades of immiseration. 
These powerful descriptions of the future demoralize us. They command us to bury our heads in our hands, to groan with sadness. Within an economy that runs on science fiction, capital, and market futurism, Africa is always the zone of absolute dystopia in a discourse that aspires to unchallengeable certainty. And Eschen goes on to say that science fiction works by, and this is his term, pre-programming the present and concludes that, and I'm going to quote him again, science fiction is now a research and development department within a futures industry that dreams of the prediction and control of tomorrow. Corporate businesses seek to manage the unknown through decisions based on scenarios, while civil society responds to future shock through habit formatted by science fiction. Both the science fiction movie industry and the scenario are examples of cybernetic futurism that talks of things that haven't happened yet in the past tense. I wonder if you could maybe help me explicate this a bit. How does science fiction pre-program the present? What's the kind of context and the hints of this for thinking about the global South? I love Kodo-ish. And so shout out to him and to you for reading that great passage. I had such smart ideas about the way we treat race and speculation and capital and sort of whip it all together in these science fictional narratives. Just to unpack specifically what he's talking about there is one of the things that Asian is really interested in and that you're going to see a lot of, not surprisingly, African science fiction critics and authors or artists look at is the way that science fiction narratives have been used, right, by capitalist actors to justify, and especially Western capitalist actors, but not exclusively, to justify intervention into Africa and then more generally into Black cities and spaces around the world. And so I think there was back in, maybe it's like the 1980s, where there was some amazing picture, whereas it was like maybe the 90s with George Bush. Yeah, the then President Bush, like whispering in the ear of Nelson Mandela, who was like, the great white capitalist who's going to come and partner with the great black civil rights leader to like lead South Africa out of whatever was the crisis of the moment. And I think that this is the kind of narrative representation that Asian is reacting against. And he's right that science fiction pre-programs us to tell that story for sure. The story of black civilization and spaces of black civilization as zones of absolute dystopia that can only be saved by capitalist intervention. And it's because science fiction itself is built on both narratives of white intervention and colonization of Black spaces and appropriation of Black spaces, but also on a sort of specific romance between capitalism and science. So from the beginning, science fiction from the 18th and 19th centuries, in its modern iterations, it was already building on those narratives of colonial adventure and exploitation. And so immediately science fiction was building itself in these sort of raced dimensions about the rightness and the inevitableness of white Western actors going into black spaces and doing what they want with those spaces in the names of progress and futurity and whatever else manifest destiny. A great place to see this is in George Millet's A Trip to the Moon from 1902, one of the very first science fiction narratives and one that just 100% dramatizes the romance of the colonial and adventure from the French perspective, while literally building out the bug-eyed monster as the racial other. So you see that baked in right away into science fiction. And then something funny happens around World War II. As science becomes big business and science suddenly can't be done just by independent laboratories, it has to be done by scientists working in concert with universities and with governments. Right. And we sort of have this new sets of alliances as science becomes big science, essentially. Science fiction authors realize they're going to have to start telling different stories. And the story they start to tell about how we win the future is by brave and clear eyed engineers partnering with equally brave and clear eyed capitalists. So it's not just a wrench that gets you to the moon, but a wrench and a big fat paycheck and possibly some good government connections as well. And so all of a sudden we have that romance of capitalism and being a sort of techno-scientific savior and enabler. And those two narratives then, the colonial adventure narrative and the sort of economic technological romance narrative, collapse together so often and in such devastating ways in our depictions of Africa and other spaces of Blackness, New Orleans, Detroit. I live in Atlanta. Take your pick. 
You know, this is interesting. It's making me think that a piece of science fiction that I teach, which is H.G. Wells's 1898 War of the Worlds, is even more subversive than I initially thought against this backdrop. For listeners who are not familiar with War of the Worlds, which is later broadcasting in the United States in about 1938 by Orson Welles, H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds narrates and is considered to be one of the first alien invasion stories. And not that many people know this. It was initially conceived of as a screed against the British invasion and colonialism of Tasmania. So now you're making me think that if the backdrop of science fiction is already a colonial project that anticipates going into black spaces and colonizing it, uh, something like H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds is particularly subversive, not only in subverting a kind of colonial manifest destiny narrative, but also subverting a particular trope within the genre that he's writing in. And that makes total sense to me because, right, Wells is both sort of creating and destroying those tropes. And he really specialized in doing weird things like that so that he would build sort of up the genre and then undercut it, too. It's funny you would mention that, though, because that makes sense for me of a story that I sometimes teach, which is a story by Garrett P. Service called Edison's Conquest of Mars. And Service was an American contemporary of H.G. Wells's, And in fact, he bootlegged War of the Worlds and printed it here in the United States and made a huge profit before he got caught. But Americans didn't like War of the Worlds. They thought the ending was super lame and unsatisfying. And so Service, actually, once he got caught and he couldn't publish the Wells book anymore anyway, he wrote a sequel to it. And he rewrote it for basically American audiences. And it's called Edison's Conquest of Mars. And our great homegrown genius, Thomas Elba Edison, calls an international congress of scientists and he leads them in the creation of a spaceship and they take it to Mars and we take it to the Martians and we win and we plant the American flag on Martian soil. And Americans loved it, apparently. And is that a utopian or a dystopian vision? I think the answer is yes, depending on your point in time and your <laughs> sympathies. My understanding is it was pretty popular at the time when it came out, and which makes sense. We're talking the turn of the 19th into the 20th century. So really sort of that moment of manifest destiny for sure. But it never got reprinted. I mean, you can find it. It's on the internet. What's so interesting to me is that so many of these science fiction narratives, even when science fiction meets capitalism and is in, in many ways celebrating the intertwining and the convening of both of these things, ends up being quite dystopian. I think about the long tradition of science fiction, you know, from Frankenstein to E.M. Forrester's The Machine Stops, all the way, you know, to Wally. And I think about these science fiction narratives, uh, narratives that have, I think, in many ways, spurred a vision for technological development that ultimately comes to fruition, you know, from biological reanimations of bodies, which Frankenstein envisioned, to E.M. Forrester's The Machine Stops, which provides a kind of prototype that inventors enlisted in imagining and then creating the internet to Wally, which I'm increasingly thinking, despite its dystopian tilt, is <laughs> at the bedrock of an imagination by somebody like Jeff Bezos to leave planet Earth and go and find a way to live outside of the planet. And what's interesting to me is that all of these narratives are clearly marked as science fiction dystopias. And yet somehow they become prototypes by which those who identify potential areas for actual practical technological development enlist these ideas and build them into the present as actual material technologies with the idea that these technologies are progressive. Can you help me understand what seems to me like a bit of a puzzle or a disjuncture? Well, a lot of these stories, like I think Wally is a good example, right? I mean, they're dystopias, but we get through the dystopia. We survive the dystopia and we turn it around and it becomes historically dystopia. And we can all thank H.G. Wells for this, right? Because he's kind of the one who invented this trick in modern science fiction. You use the dystopia to at least pretend you're getting rid of all the parts of society you don't like and then to sort of rebuild it in the image you want. And if you want to read Wally as sort of a prototype for Jeff Bezos thinking about like how we could wreck the earth and leave it, right? Like there's this utopian hope within Wally that if we leave long enough that it'll fix itself because that's sort of what magically happens. You know, like right there, humans are gone long enough that Wally finds a plant. 
and the earth is starting to rebuild itself, right? That, there's that utopian moment that actually starts the change. So this idea that we can run away and leave our troubles behind and fix it, it's very much though part of that long tradition of Western manifest destiny. The idea that you use up a resource and you move on and either there'll be more resources or eventually this is the new twist. You can loop back and the resources will renew themselves. Like earth abides. Or you can take the technology out of the dystopia and leave the dystopian dimension behind. You can have the machine without the machine stops. Yeah, or at least for a select few. And I think that cyberpunk actually does a great job imagining that, like that most of us are stuck still down on a sort of broken, dirty, you know, sort of crime-ridden earth. But you've got the select few. They're orbiting up in the stars and they're living like the Asimov and Heinlein dream up there. And eventually they'll come back to Earth and we're all dead and, and Earth abides. <laughs> and they get to live the utopia. I think cyberpunk is a good example of broader growing body of dystopian science fiction that counters our idea of progress, directing us, I think, to really reassess the assumptions we have about progress and human values that we often talk about technology producing. How do science fictions, particularly by writers in, I think, the global South, which is where I see a lot of this challenge to progress coming in the arena of science fiction, direct us to imagine our future? How do they engage with our faith in tech as progress, as inherently progressive, when progress is itself responsible for the dystopias that we may soon inhabit? And in an age of dystopias that seem dreamed up in science fiction, but are becoming all too real, I think a couple of examples of that include surveillance states enabled by new technologies, climate disaster, pandemics. How do these narratives envision or forbid an ethic of hope? So I think what they do is they challenge us to either nuance or shift our ethics of hopes, or in some cases, multiply them. And that sort of was always my favorite option here, is that while you're right, there's a lot of stories, and I'm going to say not just written by Global South authors, I actually see there's a lot of dystopias written by white Westerners, right, too. And, you know, I mean, we can think of some famous feminist ones like Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's mm -hmm. Tale, or more recently, Naomi Alderman's The Power, or N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth Trilogy. T.C. Boyle's new book. Right. There's lots of these. So I do want to say this about, you know, we got all kinds of people, you know, of all races and genders and creeds and colors who are writing these dystopias right now. But what's interesting is that there's a lot of different forms of dystopia. So you have some things like especially early cyberpunk, cyberpunk, what I like to call 1.0 from the 80s and 90s, which is pretty, pretty grimly dystopian and really says, wow, our ideas about progress, like, this is where it's going to end us, like with the end of nations and with corporations having more rights than people, with us all sort of living in these like sort of deranged experiments in Darwinian science and technology and economics and living sort of hand to mouth lives like that. And those stories show us sort of the end of progress. But we also see a lot of stories that I think are impatient with just that idea that the dystopia goes on and on and the real horror is it's never so full-blown, <laughs> right? The real horror of cyberpunk is it's not that bad of a dystopia. Like everyone's kind of willing to live with it. <laughs> like there's no revolution. No one's starting a revolution. Uh -huh. Like even in Blade Runner, maybe some few people push back at the margins, but most people just kind of want to live a little longer and prosper a little more. Modest goals. So I do think we see a lot of these stories that are showing us the limits of progress, especially in a lot of stories that we talk about are called like retrofuturist stories, right? Stories that invoke our old visions of what the future would look like and show us, eh, it didn't really turn out that great. It's a little bit dirty or downtrodden, kind of like Star Wars, for instance, right? Like we got the Galactic Empire, but slavery still exists and it's constant infighting between political groups with really kind of like long and drawn out agendas that no one quite understands. It's watching, you know, world politics. But alongside those, what scholars are increasingly calling co-futurisms that are imagined and have been imagined for hundreds of years by other people. And while these stories might also have a dystopian settings or elements and very much show the dangers or limits of Western ideas about progress, they're impatient with the idea that's what all there is. And they suggest to us that there might be something more and other ways to think about these moments, right? In particular, I think that we see indigenous authors and authors from the global South using science fiction to remind us that many people 
have already lived through techno-scientific apocalypses. And their demise has already been pronounced by the people who currently hold power in the world. And yet they persist and not just persist, but that these groups have not only survived their own supposed obliteration, but find ways to persist and resist and evolve for better and for worse, just like white people. And these kind of stories, I think, multiply our senses of what becomes possible. And they often do so by multiplying our sense of what constitutes science and technology and an ethics of science and technology by pulling from, oh, just, you know, really quickly, like from indigenous traditions, right? And showing us how they could be templates for action again in the future. So how do we think about sci-fi and its larger relationship to the ethics of technological production? How does or how can sci-fi guide our thinking at this intersection? Science fiction, it's a virtual laboratory that allows us to do the kinds of experimenting and thinking that scientists and engineers can't necessarily do themselves. So it's not that scientists and engineers don't think about the impact of their work on the world or even speculate about what it might look like in the future. But the horizon for speculation is very limited, right? And for a variety of reasons, it's usually about five years because scientists have to deal with some really practical things. You have to keep your labs running. You need to get grants to fund your research. You have a lot of people depending on you for money. You might have disciplinary pride, right? There's all these different things that are going on. I wanted to maybe just cut in and ask you, like, in what ways can the critical thinking and thought processes that science fiction provides or maybe enables help us to inform and improve the ways in which someone in the sciences or in tech thinks about the future of tech and science? I think that there are two really valuable tools that science fiction author can offer to scientists and engineers. So the first is the tool of estrangement, of learning how to see yourself and your work from a different perspective, how to get outside your own head and outside your work group and the small community you're in to see how other people are thinking about the impact of you and your work on the world. And I always tell scientists and engineers, if nothing else, this is so important. This is your chance to see the way that regular people get to talk back to you, scientists and engineers. We write stories (laughs) about you and what we think about you. And if you really want to know what people think about your line of work, you know, maybe read a few books about how people represent you. And that's an estranging and weird experience. Like, I don't like to watch movies about academics. I find them very, very, very estranging and creepy. It sort of shifts your worldview, but it can also be kind of useful to learn about these things. And I think that's especially true for scientists and engineers who want to do work that has impact and significance in the real world. So the other thing that's even more important, maybe, and certainly a lot more fun for everyone is imagineering, is that science fiction can help engineers play and to tap into the natural play and creativity that comes in scientific speculation and engineering experimentation. And to show you how to sort of play in that laboratory of your mind, right? Because you can do things in your head that you just can't do in the real world. There's really a limit to how much you can experiment with people. But in fiction, you can go to town. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just underwent IRB certification for a certain grant that I'm doing. And no, there's a very limited amount of bandwidth that you get to test human subjects once you have to actually practically undergo that. I wanted to tie what you're saying here about Imagineering back to some of our previous conversation about thinking about the relationship of imagining to the exportation of technological productions to the global context. Now, I live in Silicon Valley, and one thing that I see happening is a relatively homogeneous group of people in Silicon Valley in a very specific geographical location. Imagine, produce, and then export that production and that imagination to the world, oftentimes in ways that are very discordant or cacophonous with the rate that the rest of the world lives And I wanted to, you know, ask you about something that I've heard you say that we use science fiction to explore the necessary relations of science, society and race to state claims for people, for themselves and for their communities in the global future imaginary. So let's talk about that idea of imagineering in the global future imaginary. What's at stake ethically in a global future imaginary? 
So right now, what's at stake is getting more voices at table and in the conversation. And again, I think multiplying our sense of both the promises and perils of sciences and technologies. The more heads we put together, the more we can work through these different possibilities virtually and through dialogue and through stories rather than having to experiment with real life, perhaps. So I think one thing we see right now is that the future imaginary is essentially the imaginary that's exported through Hollywood and through certain sets of television stations, largely in the U.S., but in a few other countries as well, right? And increasingly, we have maybe like Bollywood and Nollywood, but really the way we have right now an imaginary, that imagination of the future, it's largely exported through our entertainment systems, maybe through some other cultural discourses as well, but really through our films, through our books, our games, and films and games, I think in particular right now, constitute our global imaginary. and. So as long as you have the same sets of people writing those stories and disseminating those stories, we'll have the same conversation about the same sets of issues. And it's hard to move forward when you're in an echo chamber. Science fiction has always been global and there have always been moments where it is more and less open to the global. And we're really in a moment now where we're very open to the global for a number of reasons, because we live in a world that's increasingly structured in ways that we have to think about the global and our relationship to other people. But also because we do have sets of technologies now that allow people to broadcast their visions of the future to other people across the world. And even if my YouTube channel, which cannot get like above 82 followers, isn't the same as James Cameron's YouTube channel, which I don't even want to know, right, how many jillions of followers he has. It's a start. And it allows people to create networks, too. And when minority voices to begin to network like this, you can begin to shift power around a little bit. And this is something that actually I have colleagues who are studying in science fiction right now is how it is that it, you get these people with minority voices and positions of just a little tiny power. Once you start linking together the way you really can open up pathways for change. We live in a moment where we can do it. We can multiply that future imaginary. When we talk about science fiction, I think most of us tend to think about fiction. In other words, either these scribbles written on pages that we call books or films or other forms of media that talk about a particular, as you put it, a laboratory where we can envision and play out the repercussions of introducing an alternative technology or reality. But what about, for example, fiction about our given reality that's written in, for example, tweets? Would that be considered science fiction? Are there ways in which our technologies themselves and the enlisting of our technologies as ways to produce fiction might themselves be considered to be science fiction? So, for example, I'm thinking about the novel recently published by, I believe it was Louise Erdrich on Twitter, but I'm also thinking about short stories written by AI. <laughs> I'm also, you know, talking about something like Wally, -E, which is not only a film about technology, but also a film by Pixar created very highly by artificial intelligence and other forms of technology. So how expansive can that genre and that category of science fiction become? Well, that's a game that we could play for hours and days and weeks. There's two parts of the problem, the science part and the fiction part, right? So I think the question that you're sort of exploring, is it just about the way we represent science and technology within the narrative itself? Or can science fiction somehow be linked to the means of production as well? And I do think that different media have different affordances for science fiction, for sure. And some lend themselves more easily to certain kinds of science fiction than others. So for instance, film is all about as Susan Sontag told us, the spectacle of disaster. So it's no surprise that you're going to tend to see disaster stories and dystopian stories in film because they visualize so beautifully. Right. They're spectacular. Like, no one wants to see a utopia because there is nothing more boring than Professor Exposition pulling out her you know, pipe and puffing <laughs> on it and then talking to you for 10 minutes about how the utopia came to be. You're like, oh my gosh, just kill me now. But within a book, that can be really fun because you can put in all kinds of witty conversations and sort of Asides, and even maybe in a graphic novel, you can do some work with the visuals from the words and sort of have different narratives and a little more play with it. So different media are going to, I think, definitely change the kinds of stories that you tell. 
So the other question is the question of fiction. And this is actually a huge debate within the science fiction community. What do we mean by fiction? Can poetry be science fiction? Can a non-narrative art form be science fiction? I don't know. If it doesn't have a narrative, is it fiction? And is it science fiction? Or is it science fictional something else? I want to say yes, because I want to be very Walt Whitman-esque and inclusive and let science fiction be a gigantic tent. I do think one thing that's interesting is to talk about the relationship between science fiction and AIs, and especially AIs, neural networks that are creating science fiction. We have neural nets doing all kinds of cool things these days. Recently, an AI just won a major fashion competition in China. The outfits are gorgeous, really beautiful. And of course, as many people know, a few years ago, a neural net named Benjamin wrote a short movie called Sunspring, which was made into a little 10-minute film and it stars Thomas Middleditch and a few other people. I love to show this movie because as I tell my students, like once you've watched this movie, you will stop being worried about the robot revolution because like, <laughs> I got to tell you, AIs, they can't even write a 10-minute science fiction movie. And you're like, okay, this is cool. But it's actually, it's a beautiful movie. And what I like about it is the movie is not science fiction. The only thing that's, it's not really narrative. It's a neat movie. It's very evocative and strange and kind of surreal and poetic. But there's no real story. The only story there is apparently the story that the three actors forced onto it. And that's what the director really said is like, if anything makes any sense, it's because the actors just dug and dug <laughs> until they could do something with it. And they had to put a narrative in because the AI had a lot of dialogue but it doesn't make a lot of sense. But what that did show us was because the AI had digested the scripts from the 125 top grossing Hollywood science fiction films. And so when you watch the movie, you keep hearing these lines that you recognize and sort of moves that you recognize from other science fiction movies, but they're so out of context and they're strung together. <laughs> it weirdly makes you appreciate the craft because you realize that the poor AI has no sense of the craft. <laughs> I wanted to switch gears and ask you about your book, The Future is Female, which celebrates three generations of women who contributed to the development of science fiction as a distinct popular genre, as the description of the book states, from the 1920s to the 1970s. I wonder if you could describe the historiography and the history of how women have been written out of science fiction histories and anthologies and consequentially why it is so significant for you to have recovered and put a spotlight on the stories that you do. How would you start that process of constructing an alternative sci-fi timeline, one that features women? Where would we start that timeline? And what are some critical moments on that timeline that you would want to plot? So the history of how women got written out of science fiction history, in short, it's not at all complicated, but what it is it's the story of multiple generations of anthology editors, initially male, but then eventually also female, making choices in terms of how they themselves would shape science fiction history that were based both on sort of their own political moments and specifically the specific political whims of individual editors are shockingly important within a field like this but also their access to the science fiction archive. And that's something not as many people talk about that I've been thinking about a lot. So for instance, what we find was especially true for that future as female was that the first generation of editors to put together science fiction anthologies to create a history of science fiction were editors who came of age in the 1930s and early 40s. And one of the great names that many people will recognize is John W. Campbell. He was not alone. In this, there were a number of other editors who were also involved in this, but he's the big name people now. So even though these editors came up in a moment when there were quite a few women in science fiction, there's always like been at least 15% of the community that has overtly identified as female. By the time that Campbell and his peers are moving into positions of power and creating the first histories of science fiction, a couple things are happening. First and foremost, this generation was part of a larger backlash against progressive politics in America and against feminist politics in the 1930s and 40s. And Campbell and a lot of his peers were conservative and sort of prickly as it was. And they objected to progressive politics in general. And they also objected to some of their editorial predecessors, 
and the kinds of science fiction that they had been championing. So a number of them disliked Hugo Bernsbeck, who's often seen as the, one of the very first founding fathers of science fiction. There seems to be some anti-Semitism involved with that. There also seems to be some skepticism about Bernsbeck. He rolled with feminists. He was in favor of the birth control movement. He allowed those pesky women to write utopias in his magazines. And there was sort of this moment that as Campbell and his peers were putting together the first anthologies, not just that they were like maliciously, we're going to eliminate all the women, but they kind of wanted to reshape history away from this earlier tradition that had been a little bit more open and progressive and sort of push it towards their own, you know, ideological bent, sort of more conservative, more very science and technology focused, more about the cold equations of like the impact of science on society than anything else. So that ended up eliminating a number of writers and including a lot of women writers. And sometimes that just happened because there was this larger project. Sometimes it was kind of deliberate. We know, for instance, that Leslie Stone, who was a famous first generation science fiction author, she had been included in one of the first anthologies. And when there was a debut party for it, she couldn't make the party. So she sent her husband. And the editors of the anthology all assumed that he was Leslie Stone. And when he said, no, I'm here to represent my wife, people, what are you talking about? She's the one who's been writing this stuff for 25 years. One of them even said to his face, well, if we'd known that, we wouldn't have included this story. And Stone, till her dying day, literally was like, well, you know, this was one of the reasons I left that community. And we know a number of women left at that time because they were just not into the sort of more conservative shift that science fiction was taking and the more commercial shift it was taking as well. And I think that commercial and sexist tilt that science fiction took is really its legacy. I mean, I'll show my cards here. I love reading sci-fi, but I too, like you teach at a technical university where I teach a lot of engineers and sometimes I get really exasperated by teaching it because there's a group of people who consider themselves sci-fi fans precisely because I think in the back of their mind that canon doesn't have to deal with any gender stuff or race stuff and because they can, for the most part, believe that they will be dealing with an area of literature that is mostly white and male. So I guess I'm always a little suspicious when I meet someone who tells me that they just love reading, but only sci-fi. Because for the most part, what they mean is not that they just love all the dimensions of the literary tradition that you've just explicated, but they love a kind of literary canon that you seek to overturn. What is your experience when you tell students, guess what, you get to take a sci-fi course for reading only women? <laughs> What I find the best thing to do in these situations, and we're assuming this is a sort of non-hostile situation, right? Just sort of a reasonably well-meaning, but perhaps clueless person. I, I call these the old school fans, right? S-K-O-L, right? I try to meet them on our common ground, which is fandom. And then I try to lean into my work as a cultural historian and play the super geek and almost sort of out-geek them, right? That it's like, oh my gosh, let's spend like 10 minutes like geeking out on everything you know. And oh yeah, you've read everything Isaac Asimov ever wrote and you think he's the real father of science fiction. That's so amazing and cool. Did you know when he was 16, he wrote a letter to the editor of Amazing Stories and declared there should never be kissing in science fiction. So you drop in like little facts like that and all of a sudden like, you know, people's perspective, like it's kind of funny, it's a little weird, but like they're like, oh, you get kind of intrigued, start talking open up hopefully a little. And if it's going well, sort of keep going there and be like, yeah, I know his biography is like 53 volumes long. But if you're reading it, you know, on volume 14, page three, he talks about how he got into science fiction by reading Leslie Stone, who was one of the first women writers in science fiction. Oh, you didn't know that? You know what? Why don't you send me your favorite Asimov story? I'm going to send you that Stone story. And so I hope to sort of make people's lives a little bigger by just sort of showing them the ways these people were connected. So maybe instead of leading with Isaac Asimov was often called the man with a thousand hands, right? Rather than leading with like trying to sort of knock people's favorite science fiction authors or stories or narratives off the table, I want to make them part of a bigger universe. And that sometimes works, especially with science fiction fans, because a real science fiction fan, if they're a real fan, they don't mind being corrected. I find the real science fiction fan, for whatever reason, like they'll look you in the eye and they'll be like, oh, OK, thanks for letting me know about that. Maybe because they're used to reading about stories where people do have to acknowledge sometimes they're wrong and their worlds get a little bigger. 
what I find is actually worse than the people who say there's only this one tradition are frankly the would-be allies who are like, yeah, love that you're doing this work. Love that we're going to be reading this. And let me tell you, you know what? I read one book by Octavia Butler like 10 years ago, and now I'm going to man and wife explain to you everything about Black feminism. And you're like, oh, cool. Why don't you do that for me? Those are actually the ones I find a lot more challenging. I don't know what to do with them. (laughs) How did science fiction written by American women, many of whom have been forgotten, shape not only the American imagination about technology, but actual technological products and culture? I mean, I'm really fascinated by the kind of feedback loops that happen between science fiction ideation on the one hand and production on the other hand. And I'm very interested in the idea that in the post-war period, women helped to shape in that kind of feedback loop, both of these terrains in interactive ways. I would have to say in the post-war era, that would be women's domestic science fiction stories, and especially those that are about stories, and especially those that are about uh, advertising and consuming in the home and sort of the home as the space of adventure for women, that you have ads that are already kind of science fictionally imagining women sort of traveling through these fantastic kitchens and, you know, homes of tomorrow and things like that. And then you have science fiction authors who are writing back and imagining things like, let's say, for instance, you know, a refrigerator that lets you know when you don't have all the food that you need, right? And of course, we have refrigerators now that can do exactly that, right? They can like wire into your smartphone and add things to your grocery list for you. We might get things like actually Philip K. Dick, right? A man wrote this one, but the other way around that the machines, if they decide that you're not behaving right, won't give you anything. We don't actually have that yet, but we totally should. And so for instance, what women might imagine is that often like beauty myth stuff, right? So women imagine that you would get on the scale and when, depending on what the scale says, it's going to talk to your refrigerator and then the refrigerator is either going to let you open it or not that day, depending (laughs) on that. And while we certainly don't have things to that extreme, right? I think that idea of these sort of like interconnected wired homes that take over some of the jobs of the traditional housewife for better and for worse, we do end up with those or something like those eventually. I don't mean to complicate the talking that you're doing about all of these stories that I've never read. So they might be canon to you, but they're certainly not to me is making me think about Adding one more complication to that term, science fiction, to talk about the ways in which our sciences and technologies in this moment are actually reshaping the way we think about and we read fiction. So, for example, one of the things that I've been doing is I've been creating an entire database of 10,000 stories, which is every single story ever published in The New Yorker. And most of these stories have not been read, you know, since they were published in 1936 by one woman who was probably a housewife and published one thing in her entire life and has no other biography to her name. But that technologies like archives and data storage and data analytics allow me to read and identify different dimensions of these stories and recover potentially and read, I'm putting air quotes here for listeners who don't have the visual stories that and recover stories that I might not otherwise have access to if I were just reading the canon. I don't want to, again, complicate that term science fiction to include the ways in which we're using science and technology to read fiction. But I wonder if part of the recovery project that you were able to do is also contingent upon technologies that are available now. And if so, whether you could talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. Digital technologies have completely changed the way we approach the science fiction archives. And as with many other kinds of magazine-based archives, right, these were ephemeral archives. Magazines were meant to be bought and consumed and disposed of almost on a weekly basis. And even if someone did keep those magazines, they were so fragile and, you know, often made on cheap paper. This was especially true for the science fiction magazines because they were made on pulp paper, the cheapest like a paper, very porous, very prone to decay. So even if you kept the magazines, if you didn't keep them in pristine condition, they were going to rot or more likely some relative would find them and throw them out. So a lot of the magazines haven't survived and the ones that have are hard to access. They're either in the homes of fans and private collections or in university archives. And that means very few people are going to have access to them. Only people with access to that campus and then people with the interest and the know-how know to find archives and get to them. 
So it was really difficult to do this work. And that was part of, I think, why the canon has been shaped the way it's been shaped. We really relied on individual people's memories and records of what happened in order to tell the history of science fiction. And anyone who's ever studied the psychology of witnesses knows like witnesses are right 30% of the time. So you wonder why we get the histories we get. It's just human nature. We tell our stories the way we do. But with these digital technologies, there's so much more access to the archive. And that happens in three different ways, right? One thing is the web of interlibrary loan that if I can figure out that a story existed, I can request it from my library. And if we don't have it in the magazines in our science fiction archive, my librarians can shoot out a request and I've got a PDF of it in under a week. And it's kind of a miracle. And when I trained my undergraduate research team to work on, we're working on the sequel, The Future is Female right now, they were very skeptical that this whole interlibrary loan thing would work. But now they're, they just love it. They're like, wow, you can get anything at your fingertips. It's exciting. Especially because they're so used to hopping on the internet and finding everything they want. And that was just not possible with a lot of these old stories. So that's been exciting. And then the other thing that's really cool is that when you yourself are in the archives, used to be you had to put on your white gloves and get a pencil and use the bean bags to open the books very carefully and then take notes. But now you still have to wear the gloves and use the bean bags to open the book. But you can just use your phone and take photos of everything. And it's just so much more efficient. I'll go to archives and I just take photos. I don't even look at the photos. I just take them for days and then I go home and look at them later. So that's been pretty exciting. And then, of course, shout out to all the science fiction fans who are doing the massive labor of love and starting to digitize the stuff themselves and put it out on the internet where everyone can find it. So like uns.org has wonderful things. Obviously, you can find stories on Gutenberg Trust. A lot of people are figuring out which of the science fiction magazines never got recopyrighted, which was a ton of them, it turns out. And they can all be put online for free. It's amazing. It's a really cool resource. So If anything, I'm a little worried that I'm going to get lapped just by the public and I'm not going to have a job anymore. (laughs) That's a problem in academia outside of whether or not you get lapped by the public. The context for the series is thinking about the role of the humanities and more broadly humanistic driven inquiry in the context of tech, culture and production. What value does literary studies specifically or the humanities broadly as a set of disciplines and humanistic values as a tradition play or what role can these things play? in cultivating a better understanding of and thinking about what it is that we do when we envision design and create technologies. Yeah, you know, humanistic inquiry, it's utterly critical in a high-tech world, right? And it can teach us two really important lessons. The first thing that the humanities can do is, and this is so important right now, is it teaches us how to assess the competing narratives that bombard us in our media-saturated world, right? They can give us the tools to evaluate all the different stories about science and society and the self that we get from various media sources and give us a compass for navigating them and for evaluating them and ranking them, making some sense out of all of that sound and fury that may or may not signify nothing. The other thing, of course, that the humanities can do right, is that it allows for imaginative play. The humanistic inquiry really gets us back to that idea of the thought experiment, right? It allows us to ask what if and to imagine the potential results of different techno-scientific choices. And the humanities gives us tools for understanding how we can sort of do that kind of speculation. One final question. This series of which this episode is a part is titled 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology for the 21st Century. What one core lesson would you want to advocate for as a lesson on ethics and technology that you want listeners to take forward as we move deeper into the 21st century? My lesson I would want people to learn is to resist the siren call of modernism and futurism, which says, present is different than the past and the future will be too. And the best way to get to a really new and better future is for the radical break from the past and rush into the future full force. I would say quite the opposite. I think the best lesson right now is that we need to learn from the past and we need to learn from both the historical record and the artistic record of the past. History can show us that we've grappled with a lot of the issues that we tend to think are new and unique to the 21st century, 
It turns out we've grappled with different iterations of them in the past, and the historical record can show us and remind us that. I think there's a sort of comfort in that and a connection to the general flow of humanity, and we can take something from that, some lessons from that, right? The other thing, of course, is that we need to learn from the fictional record, because just as history reminds us, we've grappled with many similar techno-scientific and techno-cultural issues in the past. Fiction reminds us that we've imagined responses to these things too, for better and for worse. And again, not only is there a kind of emotional comfort in that, I believe there can be a real practical, intellectual and social and even political inspiration that comes from those old stories. Because when we see them as responses to situations that we recognize, we think, you know what, maybe these could be templates for action in the present. And maybe this is what we have to do to get to new and better futures. Thank you very much, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Deb. The 22 Lessons in Ethical Technology series is co-sponsored by the National Science Foundation and the Cal Poly Strategic Research Initiative Grant Award. The show is written, hosted, and produced by me, Deb Donig, with production support from Matthew Harsh and Lee St. John. Thanks to Jake Garner and Emma Zimbro for production coordination. Our head of research for the series is Sakina Nuruddin. Our editor is Carrie Caulfield Eric. To learn more about the 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology series, visit www.etcalpoly.org. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to make sure you don't miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 